Hello, and welcome to a special bonus episode of AgTech So What, brought to you by Tenacious Ventures. I'm Sarah Nolette. Breaking news in the AgTech world abounds here at the beginning of 2023. And as we've tracked the latest announcements, we've been thinking a lot about what a few tech updates, especially for major brands, might mean for the AgTech landscape over the coming months and years. My colleagues Kamal Patel, Matthew Pryor, and I found two pieces of news especially impactful, and we wanted to share a bit of our analysis around why we think they're worth paying attention to. The first story revolves around the long time coming launch of an ag tech company that's been on our radar for years. Here's Kamal. Recently, Alphabet, which is the parent company of Google, they announced the launch of Mineral, which is their ag tech business aiming to provide foundational data and analytics across the sector. So basically what they're doing is collecting data at scale, both through their ground-based rover that they've designed, and then through other sources, including satellite imagery, farm equipment, public data sources, and the like. And their hope really is to unlock analytics and AI, artificial intelligence and machine learning capabilities on the back of that data. I was wondering what you make of that announcement and if there's anything in particular that surprised you about their announcement. Yeah, it's fascinating. And I think especially at the moment where there's so much conversation going on about AI with chat GPT and GPT-3 and what are they capable of? It's pretty interesting time to make the announcement. So I think partly maybe there's a context there where Microsoft with OpenAI are definitely on the front foot here. And there's been kind of meta level commentary that Google and hence Alphabet possibly a little bit behind. My initial thought there, because the way they describe the way they put these models, again, 10% of the global farmland is a pretty interesting figure. But then I started to think about how would that be possible? And they specifically talk about some of it is captured with a, like a rover that's doing really high resolution on farm stuff. Clearly that can't be a big percent of it so the rest of it has got to be satellite and remote and I think timing was again it was interesting because Planet made that announcement recently about a collaboration around index insurance. Okay so quick background here Matthew is referring to Planet Labs recent announcement that they plan to begin supporting insurance products in some markets specifically for drought insurance in the Horn of Africa backed by their global satellite data set. Back to Matthew. I sat in on a webinar of theirs and they are really pushing the kind of breadth and depth of their sensor platform structure. And so that kind of got me thinking, is there a smile curve here as far as farm data and therefore models? Because at one end, you've got this increasingly high resolution stuff that can be captured by satellite constellations. And on the other end, you've got this stuff that pretty much has to be captured by some kind of drone, you know, ground-based, air-based. And I think our preference probably would be for ground-based. I said, that was my kind of first thought is, is there a smile curve here? And is it interesting to think about the purpose that you would put models to based on, on how realistic it is to capture data at that resolution and scale combo. I think that the planet stuff, they're talking about kind of three meter pixel resolution for their imagery stuff. And maybe I think it's more like a hundred meter resolution for the kind of passive radar, active radar sort of approaches. And, and that's definitely not plant 
scale and at the other end you've got potential for individual plant scale so that's kind of my first thought was it doesn't feel like it's all one thing like where the data comes from how realistic it is to capture at that scale has to a inform the model and then b surely informs the business model that you can put the output of the model to i guess i came at it somewhat similar in that we've seen a lot of startups make similar claims of trying to do this with a similar high level pitch of we're going to collect all this data and then we'll build these models and we'll tell you more about crops or phenotyping or help categorize agricultural information to make better decisions. And one of the challenges has been exactly to your point, there's so much data, so many permutations, so many combinations. How can you possibly get all the way to economic value capture? And so in some ways, if anyone was going to just do everything and all of it, it would be someone with the balance sheet of Alphabet. So I don't know if that's what you mean by the smile curve, that they can get all the way to the other side of throwing enough money at it to do the custom sensors and a bot to collect the data and the remotely sensed data and being able to organize it and the models and custom training sets on different crop types across different geographies. It seems like you have to get all the way to doing all of that. I think there is also an element that it's not just the throwing money at it, but the actual, in some cases, capability within the organizations, right? I think we've heard from a lot of startups that when we push them on what's your defensibility and your core differentiation, a lot of people will say it's their models, right? That they've built the best models that are out there. And we've always found that to be a pretty tough key differentiator, knowing that it was inevitable that the likes of Microsoft and Google would someday step into this space and be able to blow them out of the water, not just because of their size and resourcing, but related to that is the amount of data that they already have access to and that they would be able to link in different ways and their technical ability to parse that information to draw insights. And one of the interesting things about Mineral and some of the articles that are out there, they were talking about potentially offering ML as a service, as a potential mm. business model? And how do startups compete with that when they can productize it? Yeah, th that that's actually where I was going with that small curve analogy comes, which the other kind of background process that was in my head was that video that Packy McCormick did with Anton from Chroma X, number five in their series about AI and data. And they're specifically talking about stable diffusion and GPT. And the perspective there basically is, look, these models are only as good as the data they have access to. So if you're the originator of the data, you're in the best position to have the best model. Right. And so their idea there was like the internet holds a lot of information, but it's limited. And so whoever has got a head start on like processing everything that was ever written on the internet is very likely to end up with the best AI models if what you're interested in is text processing, language processing, or for that matter, imagery. So I had the same thought about farm data, right? If the original source is farm data, my thought about the smile curve would be the kind of left edge is this extremely high temporal and spatial resolution data in a plant scale. And that feels inherently non-scalable from a who could capture or own the data point of view. That's got to happen on farm. And so th therefore, if you want the model to be really good, you largely want the model to be really good for you, for your farm. And so I think in that instance, the ML as a service makes all the sense in the world because the bit that's missing 
with the ML to spit whatever you want out of the model and the data is yours to capture. That's often also where we've seen startups really struggle because it, it, it turns out that they've got to retrain and retrain for each customer, which feels like a kind of onboarding scalability challenge. My thought about on the smile curve is the other edge is the kind of really large geographic scale. There will be a limit to the kind of temporal and spatial scale, but those are falling away. And that's a CapEx challenge, it seems. And Sarah, to your point about balance sheet, who's ever got the balance sheet and probably the biggest head start with actually owning the constellation. And I think that's another interesting business model question because my perspective has always been you want the shortest distance possible between the cost of acquisition and the output of the model. And so I, it doesn't make sense to me that Planet collaborate with somebody else to put index insurance in the market. Like surely they would just put the index product directly into the market because that allows them to capture the most value. And so, and so when I think about, is it Alphabet or is it Microsoft? It still feels like the ownership and tasking and ability to upgrade the constellation to the latest, greatest near infrared or whatever it is, has to have an impact on who can be in market with what business model at the, what I'm calling the right edge of the kind of smile curve of AI models for agricultural data. On the left side of the curve, the kind of ML as a service, do you see mineral? Is that kind of where you land? Is that playing on that side makes a lot more sense because they can continue to enable people to get that high temporal, high spatial resolution data, build the models and access them? Yeah, absolutely. So if you thought about what would the computing at the edge version of that look like that Swarm Farm would license for mineral, just as an example of how I can see that kind of getting into market and the tooling and the kind of whatever labeling and characterization looks like and not for nothing, like maybe that's what <clears throat> the future of ag retail looks like, right? An agronomist is sitting there labeling data captured from a specific person's farm because they're the one who actually knows it best. And so they're in the best position to make sure that the labeling is correct and therefore the output of the model based on data that's only coming from that one place that'll be really specific to that one place is turning out really high quality, high accuracy answers that people will be comfortable making decisions about. It's interesting to think about the TAM in that part of the smile curve, because yeah. right now it seems like it's startups because who else has the desire for these models and the ability to actually use them. But I guess maybe that's the vision of the future is farms like Driscoll's get advanced enough to be able to use it and maybe retail sure. channels and equipment companies. And so maybe it's the kind of near-term TAM feels small, but if you imagine the kind of digitally native version of the future, everyone who's an originator of that data as in has their own breeding plots or whatever it might be, wants to take advantage of those services. Yeah, none of this thinking so far has helped me think about a business model. Correct. <laughs> but I would temper that by saying, if what you really make money from is compute infrastructure, then you want the best applications possible and you want to put products and tools and applications out there that will drive the most data to your compute infrastructure possible. And so an application that creates really high volumes of data and 
dramatically increases the likelihood of that data being kept and stored and processed inside your infrastructure still significantly enhances Alphabet's bottom line, regardless of what contribution is made specifically by Alphabet versus they are a kind of gateway to the rest of the infrastructure. That's kind of where I landed too, is that the timing of the release is interesting. Like what was the objective of kind of going public with this? And it doesn't seem like they have product market fit or a business model. And so is it like, come use our stuff? Yeah, it wasn't clear to me either. And it's probably more about what I'm reading than necessarily timing on its own. But it felt to me like it was more about dropping something into a hole than it was about something that was clearly part of a strategy and we're going to hear the other shoe's going to drop soon and it'll all make sense. I didn't get that sense from it. Maybe one other question we slightly touched on it, but jumps, keeping in mind your smile curve, what do you think that means for early stage mm. startups that are trying to work in the space of analytics based on both remotely and locally sensed data? Yeah. So one of the points of that kind of smile curve is as a kind of indicator of where a business model might sit. And I think the challenge that we've often seen as far as kind of startups is concerned is it, it either feels really proprietary. So on the kind of very left edge is typically what we might say is large numbers of participants and small revenue contribution per participant, large number of small customers and the other edge might be the opposite. I think with startups, the challenge we see is like, what are you bringing that could create differentiation there? And again, backtracking to that Packy McCormick, not boring piece, that was part of his most recent kind of treatise on, on differentiation. And he was saying, especially in the world where these big companies have probably got a big head start already on, on how to source the data, if not already have it in their servers, have a big head start on processing. What are you bringing to the party that could be a, a differentiation? And so on. that's why I actually, I brought up Swarm Farm, obviously they're a portfolio company, but I think actually the sort of platform that could dramatically increase the ability to roll that out on the preponderance of farms. I think that that sort of opportunity feels realistic. Being in the business of like specific detection of specific phenomena feels not enough of a business model to be sustainable where we've seen people doing stuff in fruit or in grapes or in weeds for that matter in and of themselves don't feel like enough. The large numbers are there. I don't think even you know, you're getting enough revenue per customer, even at those large numbers to make for a sustainable business model. The second story we were excited to chat about comes from the traditional ag sector, where a long fought battle in the equipment space seems to be coming to maybe some kind of end. Earlier this month, John Deere signed a memorandum of understanding with the American Farm Bureau Federation, saying that they would open up the right to repair, which would enable farmers and independent providers to service equipment. And farmers have been advocating for the right to repair for a long time. So there's some apparent like signal that John Deere is willing to change. And that's perhaps interesting to think about in terms of maybe what has spurred the change of heart here and then what the implications of having a right to repair will be. It felt like there was two almost separate parts to this story. Clearly one of the angles they came at it from was 
is this like a preemptive strike by deer to head off any kind of legislative solution to the problem? And you could say on one end, that's a bit cynical of them and maybe the Farm Bureau aren't doing the right thing. Um, but actually the arguments there for heading off a legislative solution are pretty compelling when you think about the likelihood of it being a state-by-state -state thing. Like that wouldn't be a good outcome for anybody, even if they were strong initiatives, the implementation, like it's just a bad result. And so I end up feeling pretty balanced there in terms of, yeah, you could be cynical and say it's just a kind of commercial, pragmatic approach. But I also felt like, you know, especially in Australia where we see so much waste coming from state level duplication and differences. One of our portfolio companies who I was with yesterday I spent 15 minutes talking about the implication of knowing that electrical certification was required for installation, but not realizing that someone who is electrically certified in New South Wales wasn't inherently electrically certified in Victoria. And like, how stupid is this? Why, is, why does this exist? And so I think I found that part pretty compelling. I think the other angle, which was much more interesting, and the article was good in the way that it had farmers talking really specifically about why this was an issue for them. And I love the point there about rain can wreck a crop in a couple of hours, hail can destroy a crop in a couple of minutes. And so if I've got this piece of kit sitting there, I get really frustrated about not being able to fix it. And I just couldn't get away from the idea that in the end, I feel like the real problem here is the same as the kind of farm data fear, self-determination aspect, right? Because in reality, if a hailstorm is an hour away, even the local repair person, even if they knew how to fix it, wouldn't be able to fix it in time. And so it felt to me like, show me the actual instances where there's a different actual solution. Because we know that the deer person can fix it, but it might take them a week or, and it might be really expensive, right? So is the real problem that it actually costs too much or that you get pissed that you feel like you don't have a choice and I, you know, I think where I landed was in reality, this actually feels more like a human psychology challenge than that, that there aren't actual other technical pathways. So they said some interesting things there about like remote diagnostic tools and they could be a lot better and could say it's going to be here and these parts are here and your time to estimated repair is here. So there's a bunch of technical pathways, but I just... In the end, I don't think those move the needle. I think that it's just this sense that my degrees of freedom are limited by someone who I've paid money and I don't like that. I think all of this starts on the premise, though, that we live in the current world where like the equipment is designed totally. in a business model where significant portions of revenue come through service and support. And so if you imagined a different business model where the equipment was designed to be fixed by farmers. And so in the use case where a hail store is coming and something's broken, like you actually could fix it in an hour because that's how the equipment's designed. Now that's a different technical challenge and business sure. model and all those kinds of things. But I think that part of the issue is you end up in the psychology problem because that equipment is not designed to be fixed by someone who has a hailstorm coming in the next hour. And you're always going to be stuck in that conundrum a little bit. Whereas you could imagine starting from the ground up and thinking about a different network of support or a different type of solution for how service gets done. And then I think you end up in a world where right to repair 
actually looks quite different. And whether we go that way or whether like the amount of data and all the mineral algorithms and everything that's got to sit on these tractors is so complex that we're never back in that world. I think that's a different question. Yeah, I was imagining a world where like, where are the spare parts? And we've obviously talked with portfolio companies about keeping hot spares and whose inventory and whose balance sheet are they on? And there are so many different ways to solve that problem. And it is common in different kind of environments where even if you have inventory on a shelf in your warehouse, that inventory probably is still owned by the original manufacturer. And they have someone who comes through and make sure that your minimum levels of whatever widgets are above a threshold. And that's just like part of the service that they provide. And for sure, there's lots of other ways that you could see that kind of time factor being taken out. And for sure, there's a cost to that, right? Like in that, in those instances where this, I've got to get this crop off, it's going to get wet, the increase in moisture will hurt me, it'll downgrade the grain, whatever. Those are real scenarios and cost real money. But I think, yeah, there's also, we're not actually comparing apples with apples in saying even the local guy is getting their crop off at the same time and there's only one service dude. And so even if he knows how to fix it, they're going to be somewhere else probably. A, a kind of comment thread that I saw and went down the rabbit hole of articles and one of the farmers was saying like, yeah, I can buy like a older version or a different model that doesn't have these problems, but like I still really struggle to fix it myself and the time pressures. And by the way, if I wanted to be a mechanic, I would be a mechanic. And so I think some of this is to your point, the right to repair is a great phrase and there's a lot of pressure on it. And I get the psychology and I get the challenges of it, but I think the, the solutions here are not obvious when you start in the current model and how the money is made and how the equipment's designed, which isn't to say there aren't potential future different models, but not an easy one. I guess that has me thinking about the relationship to open infrastructure and what that means for either a platform model or a business model that is designed to have others come in and innovate on top of what you've built so that you don't have to be in full control over it versus wanting to own the whole ecosystem and how... Yeah, maybe right to repair sits somewhere in the middle of that spectrum. Thinking about news and how it fits into our understanding of the evolving food system, I'm reminded of a Nassim Taleb quote I love. To be completely cured of newspapers, spend a year reading the previous week's newspapers. And well, fair enough. But we have conviction that some highlights from our analysis today will have more staying power than the headlines themselves. For one, I think we're at a moment that maybe some in ag tech have feared and others long awaited when gigantic companies with human and financial resources to match are beginning to establish themselves in agriculture. This could be bad news for startups who will find themselves going head to head with the likes of Microsoft or Alphabet, but we think it actually marks an opportunity for others, whether that's an exit pathway, a scale or distribution pathway, or someone else to do some adjacent heavy technical lifting that helps supercharge a startup's capabilities. We'll be continuing to think about and watch how these technologies will or won't shape the broader system. Top of mind changes are to the future of ag retail, the future of ag equipment and opportunities for novel finance, and never-ending opportunities for innovative business models. We'd also love to hear your thoughts on these stories and whether you think we got it right, are totally off base, or might have missed something. Please let us know what you think on social media by tagging us at TenaciousVC on Twitter or drop us a note directly via our website, tenacious.ventures. But for now, this has been another special bonus episode of Ag Tech So What? Huge thanks to Matthew and Komal for joining me on today's episode. And of course, thank you for listening. For more information on any of the resources mentioned, please visit our website. I'm Sarah Nolette. Catch you next time.